are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Good evening and thanks for joining me. Yes, it is time for my final swan song on Virgin Radio Pride. Yep, let's do this for one last time and I'll tell you exactly what's occurring on my weekend outing. Good evening and welcome to my last show. Oh my, where did the summer go? Hey, talking of swan songs, summer did one of those last week, didn't it? Oh my word, I love a late September heat wave. Um, didn't plan it very well though. I found myself at my girlfriend's house in Rochdale with no access to a bikini. I know, what's a girl to do? So I ended up sunbathing in my pyjama shorts and bra. I have no shame officially. Uh, that'll teach me not to pack properly. Right, enough about me. There is so much coming up in the next three hours. I've got three inspiring people to leave you with. Uh, Later on, I'll be chatting to the LGBT sports campaigner, Lou Englefield from Pride Sports, all about how to make sport more inclusive and something our community actually wants to engage with. We'll also, of course, be talking about how we can support trans women in athletics and other sports as well. Uh, Plus, I'll be talking parenting with Jamie. He's adopted two gorgeous boys with his husband, Tom. But up next, I'll be chatting to Nathaniel Hall. He's an HIV activist who's been making theatre for years. But earlier this year, you saw him on the small screen starring opposite Ollie Alexander in It's a Sin. Yes, he played his boyfriend. And he got to kiss him. Not a bad job, eh? Um, I don't like to say I've saved the best till last because I've had some cracking guests on over the course of the summer. But I'm now going to speak to the wonderful, the gorgeous HIV activist, actor, theatre maker, superstar extraordinaire, the one and only Nathaniel Hall. Hello, how are you doing, Emma? Oh, welcome. And congratulations on your trans flag in the background of a Zoom meeting, because I've never seen anyone do that yet. <laughs> do you know what? There's so many things you can do as well. You can put like little party hats on it. I did a whole meeting the other day with a yeah. pig's face and just didn't just didn't mention it at all. Just had a pig's face throughout the whole the whole meeting. It was a very serious meeting as well. And no one said anything. No, they just know they right. just know to expect it from me now. Oh right, fella, the guy. Oh, you've put on weight, Nathaniel. Yeah. <laughs> Lockdown has been tough. Yeah, oh God. Well, so much to talk to you about, uh, not least your amazing one-man show, first time, re-touring again. But um, I can't believe it was almost two weeks ago now that it was Manchester Pride and you were curating the vigil, which for me is always the highlight of Manchester Pride. It's a time when we reflect on those people that we've sadly lost to HIV and AIDS. What was it like as an experience for you curating that really important and poignant vigil? Do you know what? It was it's the the toughest gig I've ever done. Like really? I think there was a lot a lot of pressure maybe put on myself, but because yeah. it's a space it means so much to so many different people in so many yeah. different ways. Everyone comes there for a reason. Um, you know, whether that's because they've lost someone to HIV and AIDS, whether that's because they've lost someone to, you know, in our community to old age or in other illness or sadly to, you know, a drug overdose or whatever, whatever reason they've mm. lost someone. Everyone's there for a reason. So it's about trying to like hold that space for everyone, which is really, really hard, you know, a really big challenge, but one that I really, really enjoyed doing um, and hopefully got it right for those people that were there, uh, remembering people that they'd lost. Well, I don't think you just got it right. I think it was one of the best vigils I've ever seen. And I'm not just saying that because you sat in front of me right now, <laughs> um, even if it's on Zoom. But it, what I really liked about it was it was just so inclusive and so diverse. And some of the people that you got were fantastic. Where did you find the amazing blind 
non-binary drag king from New York. Yeah, Tito, Tito Bone is amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was actually Kate O'Donnell who um, was supposed to be uh, directing the vigil with me and then unfortunately couldn't because he's in, stuck in Turkey. Um, mm. And it was Kate that suggested Tito. And I just thought, fantastic. What an amazing person, an amazing way to talk about inclusivity and making theatre and performance and, and venues more inclusive to people who are blind or who have other yeah. access needs, but in such a funny, you know, engaging way as well. It was it was just brilliant. And she had an incredible voice. I know, they, yeah. They had I, an incredible voice, sorry, yeah. Yeah, they uh, did, yeah. And of course, this is still on YouTube, is it? So for people that weren't there in Sackville Gardens at the end of Manchester Pride, this is something that we can still go and see, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's another way, a great way that Pride have made the vigil really inclusive it was mm. it was streamed live really high quality stream as well i would say you know tv broadcast quality and fantastic uh, so you can you could have watched it live at home but it's still available for people to watch now and um, i would say get your candle ready for the minute mm. silence you know and have that moment of reflection with everyone uh, even though it's not live you can still do that yeah and what was your favorite bit if you had one Ah, uh, my favourite bit. Um, I really enjoy, you know, when we, when we when we cheer and celebrate life. You know, we have a minute silence and we have that moment of quiet reflection. But I like this moment where we just go wild and we just give thanks for the life that we've had, for the life that, you know, the people we're remembering had and that, you know, the things that they achieved, the things that our community have achieved. And, the, and this year, the, the, the audience, the crowd just went wild. I'd never heard a sound like it. It was like you could hear them over in Wigan. It was that loud. <laughs> I went bonkers personally. I think I had so much pent up energy and frustration and, you know, anger at HIV and anger at cancer and anger about people that we'd lost. And But I did want to celebrate their lives as well. And I was just screaming. I was stomping the ground. I was cheering. My girlfriend was just looking at me going, she's gone bonkers. <laughs> but it is, it's that release, isn't it? And, you know, yeah. and a vigil is a place of re reflection and remembrance. And, the, and I think it's really important to have those really quiet, tender moments. Of, and, you know, you can see the crowd at that moment. You can see the people holding one another you know remembering mm. those people it is tough it's hard to go through I think it's important that we go through it as humans to experience and remember and reflect but also like you say get that anger out get that celebration out get that noise out as well because yeah. we don't often have that space to do that either yeah. now a lot of people will know your story but um, for those who don't you are a proud out gay man living with HIV um, but you had quite a unique sort of discovering you had HIV, I guess, didn't you? Because it was it was very young, pivotal time for you, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I've lived longer with HIV than I have without. Um, oh. So I've been, it's 18, 18 years now, can you believe? Um, I was diagnosed with HIV when I was 16. Mm. Um, so I had just, we're going back to 2003, the world was you know, a very homophobic place. It's still not perfect now, the UK, but we're getting a lot better. I mean, when I think back, we're just a world away now mm. to where we were, you know, and um, Section 28 was had only just been repealed that year yeah. when I left school. So, Gosh. you know, uh, being gay wasn't talked about in any positive way at school. Um, so there's lots of secrecy, lots of like shame and unpicking anyone that's come out will know what that feels like, you know, mm. unpicking all that, just coming into my own, into my sexuality and 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 met someone who was older than me and that was exciting and intoxicating and you know I'm from a really white middle class kind of upbringing it was my kind of active rebellion you know kind of going out on canal street and doing these things yeah. and as a result of that you know I, I contracted HIV and it was very powerful the shame and the stigma of HIV is very powerful but I think for me particularly it was compounded by all those those 
internalized feelings of homophobia that you're just trying to overcome and it was kind of this thing of at school it, we, we'd had a, a sex ed lesson which was a bit like if you're gay you, you'll get you know you'll get aids and die it was very much like coach Jesus. Car, classic yeah. mean girls but not as funny and you know it kind of happened the the the, the prophecy that had been laid out before me had happened and so I just completely shut down and I didn't tell anyone I didn't tell I told very very few people I didn't tell my family for 15 years and had you even come out as gay at this point yeah I mean my mum told me I was gay so that was easy (laughs) mums are good at that aren't they they always know they know she was a teacher she'd seen it you know many many times before I think she realized that it was how difficult it can be for you know for a, a child or a young person to come out so sort of helped facilitate that conversation for me so so yeah I'd come out and and I guess even beyond that and growing up I kind of lived this very out and proud life um you know went on marches volunteered for LGBT charities you know was very kind of proactive on the surface you hear my dogs barking at the door oh bless them <laughs> they're loving life aren't they they are um and uh and yeah but but kind of behind closed doors that was sort of eating away at me and it was affecting my relationships, affecting my relationship with drugs and alcohol and kind of, in, in the end, kind of all came crashing down. Well, that's it. I mean, you were happy, or well, your mum helped you really come out as gay, but, you know, still then and still now, there is this massive stigma about HIV. It was just difficult for you to say those words, I guess, wasn't it, and tell your family for so long? Yeah, absolutely. It's the hardest thing to say. And, and it's the only, um, I think it's one of the only diseases illnesses out there that has so much stigma and shame attached to it you know Hmm. because of the way it's transmitted because of the way that you catch it and and people's attitudes around that so really really hard and and I don't think my story in terms of taking a long time to tell people is unique lots of other people I know living with HIV do take quite a long time and I know lots of people I still get messages even after the vigil I was getting message after message after message after message of people saying I'm still really struggling to tell people about this I still feel really ashamed about this thing yeah, because, I mean, if you'd had cancer, you'd have told your family and they'd have gone on the treatment journey with you, wouldn't they, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's one of the reasons why I'm so vocal now and I, I've worked through that shame and I've had lots of counselling and lots of support and I've now got my family behind me and it's one of the reasons why I'm so visible and so vocal about it because I don't want other people to go through the torture that I put myself through because there is no there's no reason to be doing that. And actually, when you do come out, overwhelmingly people are very supportive so often the fear of coming out about it is is greater than the Mm. the reality but i guess you're so well known aren't you now and you're so out there as an hiv campaigner everybody knows you are hiv positive has that had any negative repercussions for you because you are so out there on social media and you know on national television uh, no, I remember when I had my first trial, well, the first, I think it was an article for BuzzFeed News um, in about 2018, which was kind of one of the, the first main articles about my story, and someone trolled me on it. And I remember all the team, my team around me, like my producer and everyone going, like being really sensitive and sending messages going, you okay? And I was like, I'm like, I'm going to wear that as a badge of honour. I'm like, if you're not, if you're not ruffling feathers, you're not doing it right in my, in my mind. But overwhelmingly, no, I think I... Um, surround myself with positivity and good people and you're not going to change everyone's you know uh, minds and if they've got a small-minded outlook on life it's easier to just move on and and move to the next person rather than dwell on it for me. I guess that's a case of there's been a lot of water under the bridge and you've had your therapy and things have changed so it's a lot easier for you now though isn't it? Yeah absolutely it is it is you know, loads, loads easier. And I think as well, you know, recently, obviously with It's a Sin, HIV's 
back on the national conversation or certainly was at the start of this year and to be involved in that and have to be able to be part of those conversations and see that I, I as a HIV activist, I was like, I've never seen the country talk about HIV in this way. So it's amazing. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. It's me, Emma Goswell. This is my Weekend Outing and I'm still in conversation with the gorgeous, the one and only Nathaniel Hall. Um, as seen in It's a Sin, which we were just talking about. Well, we just sort of broached the conversation. What was it like for you being involved in that huge drama that literally the world was talking about? Um, well, to be honest, I mean, I'm I'm a theatre actor, really. You know, yeah. I've I've done a, I've only done a little bit of television prior to that, and to bag that role, you know, was just it. It was a lot. It was a lot of pressure. You know, I, I found out when I was actually my 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 solo show was in Edinburgh. I just got a five star review from the stage, and I got a phone call from my agent about five minutes later to say I'd got a role in It's a Sin. I was like, I'm on cloud nine. What um, a day. But, yeah, yeah, but it was a real honour, you know. And when we read the script, we had the table read, and you know, and I saw the you know the cast list as well. I was just like, wow. And we knew, we knew it was special because it's a yeah. Russell T script a Russell T production the script was phenomenal when we read it through and we knew it would probably have a resonance with the LGBTQ community but hmm. we had no idea that it would have such an impact you know across the whole nation really across the whole world um and yeah it's been it's been a uh, an amazing experience and a real honor I guess to be a part of it yeah absolutely well Russell T Davis that's just like an LGBT icon isn't he really it's, it's, it's amazing we share the same planet as that man um, but it was interesting hearing him being interviewed as well saying you know this is a story he's wanted to tell since the 1980s but it's been so raw and so personal and so traumatic what he and generations went through hmm. that he couldn't tell it until now um, and you weren't really yeah. around in the 80s. I guess you're a bit younger than me, aren't you? But do you feel like you learned loads about that that era as well, just for being part of this? Um, well, I was I was born into 1980, you know, 86. So I was born right mm. into the middle of the kind of early part of the AIDS epidemic. I, I was very much aware, I think, of everything that happened. Having been, you know, a HIV activist for a number of years, I know a lot of people who lived through that, who mm. carry that trauma of that time with them. What was really amazing was to be, to get immersed into that in a way as an actor and go you know, even just down to the, the the sets and the costumes and you know the first scene I recorded was in you know a recreation of Heaven Nightclub you know in the 1980s <laughs> and I was just like although I Donald wasn't allowed to dance and everyone else was dancing around me I was like this is homophobic you cannot put me into this club <laughs> and say you're not allowed to dance because you're annoyed <laughs> so um, <laughs> But it was, it was, yeah, ex exactly what you say for, you know, for, for someone like Russell who lived through that, it was very raw. And I remember Russell saying as well that about Queer as Folk, he got criticised because he didn't have that much HIV and AIDS. There was only a small sort of storyline within yeah. that about that. And he said, yeah, but that was the first major television broadcast about gay men's lives on national television in the UK. And he's like, he didn't want our lives to be defined by this this disease, you know, yeah. and, and it's, 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 it's quite right. It's huge in our community, but there is also so much more to our community as well. So I think he was definitely right in making that uh, choice. Yeah, and he was right to wait those 20 or so years between Queer as Folk and It's a Sin, wasn't he? But interestingly, I, I didn't even realise this until fairly recently. You were the only actually HIV positive member of cast that's you know out and proud and talks about that anyway yes i'm the only openly uh, hiv positive member of the cast which i think um i've spoken to a number of uh, other 
HIV activists or people with HIV and they said that actually that was really important for them because it felt that it was there was ownership within the storytelling um, and you know Russell did speak to many many people as well in terms of his research um, and I know lots of the people lots of them are friends with me he, we, we even had a chat when he was writing the script about my story so that he made sure that it was as you know close to reality and as sensitive to those real stories as possible. Yeah, it must have been amazing to work with him. And it must have been pretty amazing to work with everybody's favourite, Ollie Alexander, as well. How was that? And you got to kiss him. <laughs> oh, we know. We've got to have a, a, a lot of snugging going on. Um, yeah, it was great. Ollie was really lovely. I was, again, when I got that phone call and I was just like, um, this proper pinch me moment to go, who's who are you playing opposite? And I sort of forgotten that Ollie was an actor as well, because Ollie was in Skins and had done quite a lot of acting before he went into I'd years forgotten. and years. I'd yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's a really great, great, you know, great actor as well. Yeah, I, mean, I don't, he's one of those people where you're like, you're just really good at everything, aren't you? Quite, bit... quite annoying, isn't he, really, <laughs> yeah. now I think about um, it. Yeah. But it was amazing. And the rest of the cast as well. And to, to work with those people and to get to know them and, and, you know, have them as friends and stuff now is amazing. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that's done. That's in the past. And uh, I may rewatch it, actually, if I can cope with the trauma of rewatching it again. Um, but really, we need to talk about your play, because this is what really put you forefront of starting to talk about this. After 15 years of being in the closet about being HIV, you finally decided to come out in quite a big way, didn't you? And write a play about your own experiences. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I make a lot of theatre from real stories and often I'm asking other people to tell their own personal stories and I'm, you know, mm. I'm telling them to be brave and bold and, and put their story out there. And then in 2017, I realised that this secret that I was carrying, that the shame of it all had completely... I, I was having a mental breakdown, essentially. You know, drugs and alcohol were playing a huge part in my life. I was in a very toxic relationship and I just had this moment where I went, you need to do something about this because I could have gone the other way very much. I could have gone on a downward spiral into really, really bad mental health challenges and, and, and issues. So I just, I, I, I caught myself in the mirror to awake two days after a house party and it was that moment I said, mm. you've got to do this. And I had, I had to force my hand and actually making the show was the thing that forced me to get the ball rolling and tell my parents, tell my family, you know, and then go on this journey to telling everyone else, telling the whole world, I guess. So you're kind of going through therapy then, really, by writing the play and then telling your parents and presumably putting that bit of the story into the play as well. So there was a lot going on in 2017 for you. Yeah, yeah. So as we went on to make the show and, and it was premiered in 2018, we I was going on that journey and all that stuff was kind of going into the script and was all is all part of it. It's part of the storytelling, this, this idea that I've got this thing to tell, I need to tell these people. And some of the real life material from my life is interwoven through throughout the piece as well. Yeah, really difficult. Would you have any advice for people that are, you know, back where Nathaniel was 15 years ago and you were, or even no, less than that, wasn't it? You were in the closet 15 years when you were going through those dark moments and you didn't feel comfortable coming out to your friends or family about being HIV positive. Yeah, it's really hard because I, I, I always try and act with compassion here and not say, you know, like, it's going to be fine, come out, you know, because I understand how difficult that is and understand how difficult it is to hear people say that and go, oh, just come out, it'll be fine. And there um, is still I, stigma, right? There is absolutely still stigma. And, you know, mm. I've had plenty of rejection, you know, from partners around the HIV. I've had plenty of, you know, issues around this. It's made my life more complicated for sure. And mm. um, so I don't want to make out that it is just a walk in the park because it isn't. There are still challenges that people like me face daily. But I think, you know, I always say to people, take your time 
when the right time comes, the right time will come. Try not to force it. If you put a deadline on it and you don't meet it, you're only going to feel like you failed. So don't do that. And and reach out and get the support that you need. For me, I didn't meet any other people living with HIV for a very long time, for sort of ten, mm. maybe 10 years. And actually, it was when I started to meet other people and share our experiences and just talk and just have a coffee and just chat about things and realize that there was many other people going through what I'd been through that was when I started to feel like yes I'm ready I've got the support around me to to kind of go and tell people about this yeah it's so important isn't it you can't underestimate it I know it's a completely different issue but um I joined a bereavement group and that helped me even more than the the therapy I was going through after losing my sister actually because just to speak to other people who've been through the same thing it's just powerful isn't it it really helps it, it is it's really really powerful really important right well we must find out a little bit more about your play and how we can go and see first time um, because you will be treading the boards what up and down the country next month uh, yeah, so we start in, on the 7th of October in Guildford and we're, we're all over the place. You can find out on my website, which is nathanieljhall.co.uk. We land and we finish with our a week's worth of performances at Contact in Manchester. Um, and that's across World AIDS Day, uh, the week of World AIDS Day. So that's going to be a really special one. Oh, amazing. Well, I'm going to 100% make sure I get tickets finally and go and see that thing I've been talking to you about this blooming play for about four years and still haven't pulled my finger <laughs> out and seen it. But no, I, re I really can't wait to go and see it. And people will be excited, won't they, to be back in theatres again, right? Yes, yeah, I hope so, yeah. And it's it's great. It's really, um, it's amazing to be able to get back. And, you know, this show was supposed to have been boxed off and the tour was supposed to have finished, you know, at the end of 2020 or something. You know, yeah. I can't, dates don't compute anymore in my mind. So, yeah, mm. really exciting to be back. And as well, you know, some of the venues we've got are still doing socially distanced for those people that are still a bit, you know, nervous or Good. anxious about going into spaces with lots of people. So there's lots of opportunities for people who still are anxious to still come and see the show as well. Oh, good. Well, 100% going to make sure I go to that. And hopefully everyone listening will as well. Uh, where can we get tickets? Whereabouts are we looking? So the best place is on my website, nathanieljhall.co.uk. And you can find all the dates there and then you can click through to book the one that's near you. Fab. And you mentioned World AIDS Day there. You're also doing some films to come out just ahead of that as well, aren't you? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we we did an outreach project whilst we were in lockdown called In Equal Parts, which um, was uh, using the platform that First Time has generated to help tell other stories of people living with HIV because there's mm. you know there's really diverse stories and they're really fascinating stories as well. So we have three amazing, unique stories of people from Greater Manchester who live with HIV, um, are told in their own way, written by them, performed by them. They'll be sort of moving around with the tour, so they'll be shown in venues as well, but also in venues across Greater Manchester in the lead up to World AIDS Day there'll be plenty of places showing them as well oh fantastic well thank you so much nathaniel and please keep on doing the amazing work you're doing and doing it in such a fabulous and wonderful way as well oh thank you so much a big thank you to nathaniel hall who was my guest this hour um, and if you want to find out more and go and see his show honestly we've got to go and see this show do it uh, you can get tickets and find out more at nathanieljhall.co.uk oh and of course congratulations to nathaniel and the rest of his gang ollie alexander all of the cast and of course russell t davis who wrote it for winning best new drama at the ntas the national television awards earlier this week so deserved i just hope that means that more people are going to watch it actually and probably a few of us will re-watch it a second third fourth or even a fifth time won't we right don't go anywhere because you are going to hear a beautiful adoption story from jamie 
That's coming up next about how two young boys completed his family. This is the weekend outing on Virgin Radio Pride with myself, Emma Goswell. Thank you for swinging by. Um, isn't it incredible just how far the LGBT community have come in the last 20 years or so? Or 30 years. I mean, I'm thinking about when I was growing up in the 1980s, I couldn't imagine a time when gay and lesbian couples, for example, could walk down the aisle and get married, let alone have their own families. But it's just brilliant now, though, isn't it? There are just so many wonderful LGBT plus modern families. It warms the cockles of my heart. I literally didn't have the imagination in the 80s to think that we'd get this far. Well, next up, you'll hear from Jamie. He's one half of the blogging couple, Daddy and Dad. And he'll be telling you all about how relatively easy and definitely rewarding it is to adopt. Good evening, it's me, Emma Goswell. And on my weekend outing, I've spoken to a few parents, actually, from the LGBT plus community. And I'm so excited to be speaking to yet another parent. I have to say, it warms my cockles because way back in 1989, when I came out to my dad, one of the first things he said was, oh, I'm never going to be a grandparent. Um, And I think there is that stigma and there is that myth um, still today that LGBT people can't or shouldn't be parents. Um, But I'm thrilled to be joined by Jamie who is one half of Daddy and Dads. Hi Jamie. Hi. Oh gosh well I mean I followed you on social media for a while and you're brilliant you and your husband um, like LGBT parenting icons I'd I'd call you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So tell us a little bit about Daddy and Dad and how that came about before we talk about uh, adoption and, and how hard or easy that is. Yeah so well Tom and I have been together for about 20 years and we became parents Oh, about eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, our sons are called Lyle and Rich, and they're 11 and 12. Wow. We adopted them. And basically, the reason we became Daddy and Dad was we needed to decide on something they would call us. And it would have been too complicated to both be Dad, which was our initial kind of thought we'd just both be called Dad. Yeah. And then, and then like, people suggested that maybe they call us by our first names, but then that was just really weird. That's too formal, yeah. isn't it? No. Yeah. And then, so basically, on the day we met our kids, it just sort of fell into place and I sort of introduced myself as daddy and it just kind of happened quite naturally. And then basically we're now well known as daddy and dad because we have one of the UK's most successful LGBTQ blogs and a social media presence, as you know. Uh, so we basically um, go about our everyday adventures with the kids and we take photographs and put them up on Instagram. And it's all very bright and colourful and we take them to all the prides and we go on holiday and we want to be as visible as we can as an LGBTQ family, you know, just really to show other people that might not realise that they can have this as their ambition, that it is possible and that we're here and this is what we look like. Absolutely. And on your blog, you've got loads of parenting advice as well. So we're going to come on to talk a bit about that as well. (laughs) And you always make it look so fun and so easy, which I know for a fact, having known plenty of people with children, it really isn't. Um, But let's go back to the beginning, shall we Mm. then? So, you know, how long had you been together when you decided, right, we want to have a family and and why was adoption the route that you decided to go down? Because it's not for everybody, is it? No, it's a challenge. Adoption is hard work. But it's really magical. Anyway, so Tom and I had been together since about year 2002. We were about 21 when we met. So we've been together about 20 years. And after about 10 years, we'd both got good jobs and we bought a house that could accommodate children. Mm. And also at that time, we were looking after our little nephews, Samuel and Finley, at weekends and every so often. So we we kind of knew that that kind of dynamic as parents with two kids might work quite well. And also some friends of ours at the time who were gay had adopted 
siblings. So we knew that was a possibility, but we hadn't really looked into it very much. So anyway, one evening at the pub, Tom and I were talking about how maybe we might start a family. We were kind of put off surrogacy through just the fact that it's quite expensive and just didn't really feel right for us. And plus, we didn't really have any experience looking after a baby. So that would have Mm -hmm. been like really hard work. And then I said to Tom, well, why don't we consider adoption, you know, because because we already know it's a possibility and that it can work well. But at that time, actually, it's only eight years ago, but there weren't that many same-sex adoptive parents back then who were visible. So there wasn't that many people we could look to as a kind of role model for this. So we talked about it and talked about it. And then eventually we Googled our local adoption agency and I made a very frightening phone call to them, my first inquiry. And I phoned them up and said, hi. Um, I'd like to inquire about adopting two children. And they took some details and they were very kind and lovely. And that's how the process began. And that was in 2012. So when Tom and I were about 32. And then the process itself took about two years, which which sounds like an incredibly long amount of time. But actually, looking back, it feels like a bit of a sort of snap. Stuff in the past. It is a long time, and I think that puts people off or worries people. And I, but I think it is quicker now. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, you are right in saying that because when we adopted, the assessment process, which is kind of out of your hands as an applicant, it wasn't as well managed as it is now. Basically, Ofsted look after the process now, so they've put in sort of time this strict timeline that a social worker has to meet, and it takes about six months at the moment to to go from that initial inquiry through to being approved as a potential adoptive parent. Well, and, that's it, and that's important, isn't it? You know, these, these children so. have already been through hell in a lot of situations that no one would ever want themselves or, their ch- or any person on the planet to go through. So yeah. they've got to be with stable and caring and loving parents who, c- who can handle them. Yeah, and another big issue is the fact that the number of kids that are in care waiting for adoptive parents way outnumbers the amount of people that are applying. So, you know, part of our work really as role models, Tom and I, within the adoption community and as influencers, is to try and encourage people to consider adoption Mm. uh, as as their root parenthood, rather than perhaps having birth children first or whatever it is. I think that's really part of our work that we try and do. So, yeah, the adoption process for us was a little bit longer, but it has to be pretty complex because, of course, adoption is such a big challenge. And all these children, as you mentioned a minute ago, have been through traumatic experiences. They've all got issues that you have to address with them. Um, so it's not something that you can take lightly. And I think the adoption process and particularly the assessment really tries to assess how resilient you are and how well you might be able to manage these issues and traumas. So basically during the assessment process, your adoption worker asks you questions and tries to assess how what the kind of traumas you've been through you know, as an, as an adult throughout your childhood. And as LGBT people, there are quite often are traumas that we've been through. Yeah, and I think LGBT people make particularly good candidates for adoption just mm. because they've all been through bullying, coming out, big kind of transitions in their life and having to put their trust in people and work through difficult experiences with other people and I think that actually is such good experience as an adoptive parent and having worked through those kind of things yourself does help. No I bet I've never really thought about it like that actually but I think LGBT people you know we are thinkers and we 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 are good at talking about our feelings because we've had to we've had to sort of go through it haven't we really? Yeah and we've also had to choose friends and family ourselves 
So having then to have children that you've chosen placed with you kind of resonates somehow as an LGBT person, you know, particularly if you've faced rejection in the past. But yeah, so I don't want to get too negative about it because it is actually quite a positive experience all in all. Oh, it is. And so how, how did you decide, you know, what age you wanted? You'd already said you hadn't got experience with babies. So did, yeah. you, just, did you give them an age range? Is that how it works? The first part of the adoption assessment process was to go for like a week's training in a little training centre with sort of 10 or 11 other couples and single people that were also planning to adopt. And one of the first things they asked us to do was to draw or write down like a sort of picture of what you can imagine your children to look like um, without conferring. And so Tom and I both drew like a sort of five-year-old little boy on his way to school with an apple in his hands. And I think, we, I think that's because that's what our nephews look like. Yeah. And um, so because we had that experience with them, that's how we could imagine our family looking. Were you looking to get one or were you thinking, actually, if there's siblings that need to be adopted, that's the route we want to go down? The siblings thing really came into this when we did a little bit of research about the type of children that are waiting for families. In essence, um, children in a sibling group are much more difficult to place in a family because yeah. people generally go into this to have a baby or to have one child. Also, with the misconception that having two children is twice as difficult as having one, which isn't necessarily true either. Um, so we just kind of thought at that point, you know, we'll go for a sibling group. We didn't know that we definitely wanted two. And we didn't really know that we were definitely going to adopt boys at that stage. But that kind of just fell into place when we were in the family finding stage. So basically the second part of the adoption process, after you've been assessed, the kind of like amount of time it takes is in your hands then because you look at profiles of all these children and there's hundreds of them and they're so gorgeous, all of them. And, and we, we decided at that stage that we would just limit our search to siblings. And that kind of cut the search right down. So it was a little mm. bit less heartbreaking. But it's really difficult, isn't it? You've got to be matched with these people. You've got to get on and the people in charge of it have got to make sure that you're matched. It's a really quite complicated process, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and you don't meet the children either. There are some adoption charities that put on little parties where you can go into a garden party and actually meet some of the children that are available. Mm. And that's quite nice, but that wasn't available to us. So at that stage, we narrowed our search down to about two or three profiles of children that we, that we thought maybe we could cope with based on, you know, that they would tell you how delayed they are in their development, what kind of issues they've got, if they've got any learning difficulties and what kind of behaviour they show. But it's all kind of a little bit vague because, of course, nobody can really analyse what a child's like in that much mm -hmm. detail. You just kind of know where they were taken from and what issues they experienced. So anyway, we narrowed our search down to about three profiles, but they didn't work out. And what happens at that stage is you say to your social worker who looks after you as adopters, we like the look of this one. And they then liaise with the children's social worker and meet for a coffee or whatever. And they then chat about what the parents are like and what the children are like and whether that could be a match. And that didn't work out for us for those um, profiles. And then... One day, probably about six months later, it's quite a long time, I was covering the reception at work and an email came through from my social worker with our boy's profile on. And there was just a little, something magical about their little photograph of their cheeky faces and, and their sort of backstory. And they were from a similar region to us um, and kind of looked like similar characteristics to other kids in our family as well. So we could just kind of felt like they, would, they looked like they would fit in quite well, which now eight years on down the line, 
they absolutely do. I mean, they, they are. They're your sons, aren't they? They absolutely are. And when you look at them with their cousins and, and other members of our family, they just completely slot in. Like, mm. it's crazy, really. It's amazing. It's amazing how it's worked out, isn't it? So the process works. So it definitely worked for you guys. What was it like that first day then that, that you actually met your children? Yeah, that, I, I would say, after the big approval interview which is where they approve you as parents that was probably the most nervous we'd ever been yeah and then the day that we met our children for the first time then probably doubled the amount of nerves we had on that day and we got there early tom always gets there early for everything and we waited around the corner in the car and we were just really over analyzing what was going to happen we were just thought i just wanted to sit and listen to music and relax for 20 minutes but we were talking about you know what, what if the boys don't like us? Because they've never met us before, ever. And literally, it was going to be like a week or two of spending a bit of time with them, and then they were going to move in. So it was really difficult. So we had a chat in the car, and we were getting ourselves a little bit worked up. And then when it got to the actual time that we were due around to their foster care home, we walked up their um, drive, Pebbly Drive and then knocked on the door, and the, uh, their foster carer, Lindsay, she opened the door to us and gave us a lovely cuddle. And then little Richard was stood behind her and he was only just four, like the week or two before. So he was oh, really right. tiny, kind of like a big toddler, really. Mm. But he looked smart with his little blonde hair parted and a little kind of cute little outfit on. And he was looking really cheeky and waved at us behind her and ran off into the house. And then it was just kind of a bit of a surreal daydream that day after that, really. Because uh, on the first day you actually meet your children, you're with them for about an hour or two. And it's all supposed to be quite informal. So they showed us their toys and they were sat at the dining table playing on computer games and playing on Lego. But it's a little bit awkward because the, their social worker is sat at the table as well and your social worker sat there. And you feel and like you're being analysed, don't you? And I'm sure they do yeah. as well, constantly. And they take notes as well. Yeah. While there. So we tried to put that to one side and actually the social worker, no, I keep saying social worker, their foster mum had been through this process a couple of times before. So she, she was really good and brought cups of tea out and she was very kind of calming and lovely. If the social worker was asking any kind of or anything awkward or was anything we were struggling with, she would just interrupt and say, oh, boys, tell us, tell your dads about the zoo trip yesterday and stuff like that, you know, to keep it all flowing. But yeah, it was a really, really emotional, nerve wracking, weird day, you know. And then and what then, about bringing them home eventually? Yeah. So during that, I think it was two weeks long, we stayed at a hotel down the road from their house their foster home and each day we spent a little bit longer with them um, and, and they gave us gradually more and more responsibility like we would take them out to the park or you know we would take them on the school run that kind of thing and collect them from school put them in the bath put them to bed so by the end of that two weeks we had sort of had a little taster of pretty much all of their routine and then on the last day we arrived with our car and the kids basically had all their bags and luggage packed and all their toys and boxes, a bit like they were leaving their jobs. <laughs> and, they, and they sort of followed us down the drive, holding our hands. And we sort of waved goodbye to a tearful foster mum. And uh, then we just yeah. sort of tooted the horn and drove off down the road, you know, with them. So that was really bizarre. And, and like driving along the motorway with our children in the back, sitting on booster seats, calling us daddy and dad and and chatting to us it was just so weird yeah but how but how amazing how incredible yeah. you know two years down the line and they're finally in the car going home with you good evening you're listening to the weekend outing on virgin radio pride with me emma goswell and i'm still in conversation with jamie who is one half of daddy and dads if you haven't heard of them 
Where he been? They're all over social media. They are LGBT parenting icons, influencers, and they've got a fantastic blog where you can find out all about adoption and get some parenting tips as well. And Gemma, we've just heard the beautiful story about when you finally, after two years of going through the process, brought your two sons home with you. Yes. Ah, oh, it must have been incredible, absolutely incredible. But um, you're now involved in this um, campaign, aren't you, to encourage more LGBT people to uh, adopt? Yes, we are. Tell us a little bit about that then. Okay, so the campaign's called You Can Adopt. And Tom and I and our children teamed up with five or six well-known, familiar celebrity adoptive families who oh, right. spread the message to people, not just LGBT, but people generally in the UK that if you're over 21 and you have a spare room at home that could accommodate a child, there's every likelihood that you can adopt. And basically it started with a TV sort of media filming uh, where Tom and I and the boys were in a TV studio sharing our story a bit like I have done with you today, um, but also with a little bit of input from the kids as well. And that was really lovely. And uh, we were there alongside Sinita and the Grant family who are presented on the one show and, and a few others as well, but quite a broad selection of people. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and the message really is that there are all these myths and pre misconceptions about adoption, which particularly relate to LGBT people, where people generally don't think they are going to be eligible to adopt, when in fact, actually, it, there's every chance that you would be and would probably make a really good, great, fantastic parent for one of these lovely children that are in care. More likely you'd be fantastic and fabulous, I'd say. Exactly. Uh, but, um, I mean, yeah. and it's, it's good that people are doing it. I mean, listeners to this show will, will know, we've spoken to a few adopted parents before, know Ben, who managed to, I think he was one of the country's youngest ever adopters. Um, and he adopted from the age of below 21, I think, and has yep. adopted now five children, all with very different needs. Yeah, he's and also part of the campaign as well. Good, well, he needs to be. He's just a legend, that man, isn't he, really? He is. That is absolutely fantastic what he's done and absolutely baffles Tom and I that he manages all these kids with all their extra kind of requirements and issues and needs that they've got. They're all really gorgeous, obviously, but, I mean, two kids that are relatively, relatively able has been such an enormous challenge for Tom and I that we can only just imagine the kind of resilience he must have, you know. And um, so, yeah, and we and that was about a year ago that the campaign began. With COVID and everything, it's gone on, and this is actually a real, real positive thing. The campaign's continued for much longer Good. than we expected it to. And so we're still talking about it all the time. And as influencers as well with the Instagram channel like we have, people often comment and message us with questions about adoption because they just didn't actually realise that gay or trans or lesbian or bisexual or whatever people could even adopt. So they're up, this work obviously still needs to continue. Doesn't it? Uh, I don't think young LGBT people necessarily still have any role models like us to look up to. I don't think they realise it's an option still. No. And it's mad, isn't it? But did you face any homophobia or, or people questioning you about your sexuality or your relationship and treating you differently to the, the way that they might treat a straight couple, do you think? Mm, I would say during the adoption process, no, not really, because, well, they're not allowed to discriminate against anybody based on any characteristics like this yeah. anyway. And 
one thing we realized when, you know, I mentioned that we'd been to like a sort of intensive training course for a week with other adopters. Well, everybody was completely different. So there were people that were older, there were Indian people, there was a black couple, there was us, there was a single lady in her 50s. It was like a real big mixture. So actually, Good. we had this worry and concern, Tom and I, that we would be looked at differently, but everybody was completely different. And I think you find that with this, with adoption, the kind of people that apply to adopt are just completely diverse. And that's good, actually, because there's so all these diverse kids as well that need homes. Well, like, and as you said, there is such a waiting list. These poor kids are in awful situations yeah. in children's homes up and down the country. We need more people to come forward, you know. We really do. Yeah, and so all these kids are in foster care homes, most of them, mm. um, which is a nice, safe environment for them, but it does feel temporary. And so they don't feel like they're permanently settled anywhere. And that's a big issue for children. Can I ask you, has there been any problems with the kids getting bullied because they've got two dads? Because I think that's something that, that I would worry about. One or two like minor incidents, but actually one thing we realised quite quickly when the kids started primary school was that we, Tom and I, are probably seen to the other kids as just another boring couple of adults. I don't think the kids are necessarily particularly prejudiced about same-sex couples at that age. Well, they're not, are they? Because as we know, all these sort of prejudices are taught, aren't they, really? And actually, yeah, kids, the but the younger they are, they don't care. They don't care. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so Tom and I were just another boring parent. The funny thing about small children when they're sort of five or six is that they are just completely no filters about what they ask, what they yeah. ask you. what they ask. So we did have, like, a couple of kids coming over, and they'll ask really ridiculous questions like, do you know Ronaldo? Or they'll say, you know, they'll just be really blunt and say, where's the boy's mum? And stuff like that and but basically they don't mean any harm or any kind of malice by it they're just completely open books aren't they these kids so tom and i were faced with kind of quite a few insensitive questions from other kids but they met, all meant well i think they were just curious you know yeah. about how one day one dad picked the boys up and the next day there's another dad you know waiting there it's just curiosity now, I know your youngest has just started high school uh, literally this week. So is that more of a worry? I don't know. I mean, that's oh. where, where bullying can happen, can't it? Having two dads, are you worried that that might be something that gets picked up now they're in secondary school? Well, Lyle's already been going to... We moved house in April, so Lyle's been there for a whole term already. And he has said that he's experienced basic homophobia he has not had any, I don't think, targeted at him, at him necessarily, but he's just witnessed it. And he's trying to find his place there, I think, because he's a little ally. I mean, they both are, really, because they <laughs> live in a totally LGBT world. Their uncles are gay as well. Oh, and, brilliant. And, and, and you're actually wearing an LGBT glitterati T-shirt today. Oh, so, yeah, yeah you're, you're constantly fabulous, aren't you, really, in the, in the home? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we are worried about it, particularly because Richard is quite a shy unassuming child whereas Lyle's quite brash and kind of popular for his football Richard although he's really lovely and cute and cool and he went off to school on Monday looking as cute as ever like a little businessman in his blazer and everything <laughs> um, we are a little bit worried that he might be a little bit less armed and prepared if he's approached by anybody who's got something nasty to say but the funny thing is about our kids is that because they live this life, all they can reply, I mean, first of all, they're completely baffled by homophobia because they live in like a kind of world where people are gay and lesbian and stuff. Yeah. But on the other hand, they will just reply with their honest experience. So if someone says, oh, your dad's a queer or something, 
I would expect they'll probably just go, yeah, they are yours, you know, or something like that, because yeah. they're just kind of like in it. I don't think they even think. It's their life, isn't it? You know, I mean, this is a totally different example, but because I grew up abroad and I moved every three years, so people are quite often say to me, oh, my God, what was that like? That must have been really weird. I was like, well, no, because it was my life, you know. And like, yeah. the same thing with your sons, like, oh, it must be really weird having two. That's like, no, that's my life. It's not weird. That's just my life. It's know? ultimate. It's really boring. It's really boring, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't got long left, but I'd love to get just a couple of parenting tips off you because, interestingly, um, this particular interview has been delayed slightly because Jamie wanted to finish having his bath because um, this is recorded in the middle of the day yeah. and he wanted to have some me time, didn't you? Because I'm guessing as a parent and a worker, you don't have a lot of free time, do you, or me time? No, I'm self-employed full-time and Tom also works full-time. And so now the kids have gone back to school. If I've got like a half an hour, an hour spare to myself during the day, I take it, take the ball by both horns. So I have a little nap or have a coffee and watch TV or have a bath usually. <laughs> uh, or go to the supermarket on my own because obviously mm. going to the supermarket with kids isn't much fun. But it's actually quite nice to mooch around Morrison's on your own oh. and uh, have a look around. So, you know... Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not really parenting advice, but it is a great idea to grab any moment you can to yourself and sort of have a nice enjoy of it. What, what's been the hardest thing, do you think, that you've really had to, to struggle with as parenting? I mean, I did read one of your recent blogs about, you know, this whole thing of punishment and reward, you know. Yeah, everything's hard because you're winging it, basically, as a parent. However, I mean, I probably present myself as quite an experienced parent, but I'm really not one. I just kind of share what the wins I've had are and the failures mm. and discuss them basically on the blog. I never pretend to be an expert, but um, I guess the hardest thing for us early on was the fact that we weren't expecting the boys to be so fighty. So when you adopt siblings, and I don't, can't say this for all siblings, because we've got family members and friends who have two children who are wonderful to each other. Our ones aren't very nice to each other. And so early, right from the get-go, really, when we adopted them, it has been a real challenge to sort of cope with their fighting constantly and squabbling. And it's a bit of a kind of constant ache in the background as well, because even when they're getting along, there's still this permanent kind of squabble between them. Mm -hmm. They're really competitive. They love each other, but that was hard. And also, I don't know about you, but like I never used to get angry very often. Like I really had never been angry for about maybe like five or 10 years. Have you become like your own parents? It does happen, yeah. I hear. <laughs> yeah. And so Basically, it was quite a shock and it felt like kind of like a bit of like an imposter syndrome to begin with, having to get angry with them. So if they were fighting or they were like sort of running into a road or um, being particularly naughty, it was really, really difficult to work out how to be like a successful, angry parent without going completely off the rails or coming across or, just totally dark. Or coming out with all the cliches like, don't let me tell yeah. you again or it'll end in tears. Yeah, exactly. And basically, <laughs> and, and it's very difficult to find a balance. So I found myself as an angry parent for like about a month, you know, constantly just getting completely hot and bothered and and horrible. And that obviously wasn't working out. So just trying to find out how... It's becoming a parent, really, and how to behave. And because no one tells you, the kids are equal part funny and lovely and gorgeous, but and naughty and sort of horrible at the same time. So, like, you do have to find that balance. And then I guess the other really hard thing was Tom and I as a couple and managing the change in our like relationship dynamic. Yeah. Um, we basically went overnight from boyfriends who spend a lot of time just one on one together to like a parenting team and like for at least the first couple of months there really wasn't any intimacy or romance and so finding that kind of new role is really hard 
And then also after that, I stayed off work on something they call adoption leave, which is a bit like maternity leave, and Tom went back to work full time. So then the dynamic completely went completely floppy skew with because I wasn't earning any money and I was spending all this quality time with the kids, which actually to me, a lot of it wasn't very quality because I was like the one having to pick up all the pieces a lot yeah. of the time. Tom then was jealous and also working really hard. So that was really, really difficult. And I think well, a lot of couples find that. Well, yeah, you have basically discovered what women over the centuries have been dealing with, basically, <laughs> that they are the ones literally picking up the poo and dealing with all the bad stuff and having the yeah. good stuff as well and yeah. not getting rewarded for it and not getting acknowledged for all that hard work that they do in terms of monetary or social recognition. Um, yeah. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough being a stay-at-home yeah. parent, whether you're yeah. male, female or non-binary. It's tough. How I mean, how it worked in the end was to try and re address the imbalance and inequality that we were experiencing. I was made redundant and made a go of it with the blog. <clears throat> so that's really how the blog got real momentum behind it and became what it is now. So I just really found that the more and more effort and creative time I spent on the blog, the more I was getting back and the more feedback I was getting. And then brands started getting involved in Disney and we got a load of brand partners in mm. behind us. And that's really how this is all developed. And it, it's worked so well now that Tom's actually joining me on Daddy and Dad full time now. Oh, well, um, remind us where we can um, look at it and read stuff. Because I have to say, even though I'm not a parent myself, I really enjoy reading your blog and getting <laughs> loads of ideas and just finding out what you guys have been up to. So where, where can people find it? Yes, so basically you can Google Daddy and Dad and all of our channels come up right at the top there. Um, but if you want to go straight to the blog, it's daddyanddad.co.uk. And we're Daddy and Dad on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere as well. Oh, they're absolutely all over that social media, them too. Tell you what. Um, and finally, before you go, Jamie, best thing, this is going to be impossible to answer probably, best thing about being a daddy or a dad? Oh, wow. Or a parent in general. Do you know, besides the fact that they they love you and so all the cuddles and I love yous and moments together are really really special and never really get boring mm. the other real fantastic thing about becoming a parent I think everybody experiences is all the brand new opportunities and friends you make so basically you have all these new parents who are all hilarious and everyone's winging it all together and um, all, all these new experiences, going to children's parties, family holidays, it's all just really quite special. And, you know, we just like wholeheartedly recommend it to everybody, but we particularly recommend adoption just because it's all about the kids and you're doing them such a mammoth favour. Mm. It changes their lives, you know, so, yeah. It really does. Well, thank you for changing their lives and thank you for educating us and hopefully you'll inspire more people to go forward and change kids' lives and look into adoption. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Daddy and Dad. Thanks. A big thank you to Jamie, who was my guest for this hour. And do check out Daddy and Dad, even if you're not a parent. I think their blog is well worth a read um, and they're all over social media, as they said. Right, thanks for joining me. I'm Emma Goswell. This is my weekend outing and I'm going to get some Girls Aloud on for you now. Um... And I really wanted to play you something from Girls Aloud this week for obvious reasons. This time last week, I was in utter, utter shock about the passing of Sarah Harding. I mean, I knew her cancer was terminal. We know these things happen. But 39 is absolutely no age. I was lucky enough to meet Sarah on a few occasions. I, in I introduced her on stage at Manchester Pride. I interviewed her for the first time, literally days after they'd won um, Pop Stars, The Rivals. 
when they were turning on the Trafford Centre lights and Sarah, God bless her cotton socks, threw her arms around me um, and said, oh my God, you're from Imagine FM, which is a small radio station based in Stockport, which doesn't exist anymore. But she was so proud of where she was. She just went, I'm from Stockport. I love you guys. And she was just so wonderful and so vivacious and so full of life. And it was a very triggering day for me because... For those of you who don't know, I lost my sister Abigail last year, not even a year ago now, to breast cancer, which then, for the same as Sarah, spread to other parts of her body and um, became secondary cancer. So it's been really tough, and I have some understanding of what Sarah's family will be going through. And it's going to take a long time. And if there's one thing that I must say to you all, and this goes for you whether you're a woman, whether you're non-binary, or whether you're a man, and this is something that Abigail was vehement about repeating and she tweeted about it all the time and that was hashtag feel your boobs and bits it literally can save your life if you're not sure how to do it go online get some advice just feel your boobs and bits and if you want to read out a bit more about my sister's blog about her cancer journey about how she fought for so long. It's funny as well. It's not all awful. Uh, go and Google Abigail's blah, blah. You won't regret it. Anyway, this one's for Abigail and for Sarah. I love this tune. Thinking of them both in happier times. This is The Promise from Girls Aloud. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Good evening, it's me Emma Goswell, hope your Sunday's been a brilliant one. Uh, coming up, you and I are going to get a little bit sporty though, well sort of. Uh, we'll be finding out all about the brilliant campaign group Pride Sports. Um, earlier this week actually, I did have my own attempt at getting sporty. Um, I was very proud of myself, I live in Manchester and almost exactly 21 years ago... <laughs> They built the Manchester Aquatic Centre for the Commonwealth Games. Um, you know, it's got them big high boards that uh, Tom Daly's probably jumped off. Um, anyway, I've been planning to go for 21 years, basically. And now I think they do say, don't they, better late than never. So finally got in and did a bit of lane swimming and felt brilliant after doing it, actually. Um, so I thought, oh, I've got to do this again. Uh, my autumn resolution, because who needs to just do these at New Year? My autumn resolution is to just go and swim every week and try and do 40 lengths of time. Guess what? It's been open for 21 years. It closes in December for a major refurb. <laughs> That's a metaphor for life, isn't it? Don't leave things till it's too late. Seize the day. Get out and blimmin' do it now. Stop promising yourself you're going to do stuff in the future, Goswell. There we go. Welcome to another weekend outing. I'll say another. The last weekend outing. And I've left it to the final show to finally get on a good friend of mine who runs an incredible organisation. We've done so many sporty interviews this summer. Well, it has been a summer of Olympics and Paralympics, hasn't it? So why not? Time now, though, to speak to the wonderful Lou Engelfield from Pride Sports. Hi, Lou. Hi, Emma. Thanks for the fabulous intro. Ah, well, we have had a very sporty summer and spoken to loads of people, so I thought it's only fair that we could get you on because you are the, the head honcho of a brilliant organisation called Pride Sports. But for people who haven't heard of it, why do you exist and, and what do you do in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell, um, Pride Sports is an LGBTIQ plus sports development and inclusion organisation 
and we work to tackle discrimination in sport and physical activity and to increase opportunities for LGBTIQ plus people to take part in sport and physical activity because there have historically been issues and there still are some issues facing our communities um, around um, getting access to, to sport, enjoying sport and physical activity. So it's a real mixture, isn't it, of grassroots stuff and getting, you know, everyday people like ourselves to actually bother to get involved in sport again because we might have abandoned it at school and working with uh, professional athletes and professional people and being involved in things like Olympics, right? Yeah, so, you know, we work at a whole load of different levels. So we work at like a kind of policy level. We work with people like Sport England. We also do have been involved in some international work, looking at policy recommendations. But it's also, as you say, you know, it's about people getting their foot through the door. So it's about working at a grassroots level, either to support the LGBTIQ plus sport and physical activity sector in the UK. There's over sort of 250 clubs here. Wow. Or working with what, what for want of a better word, mainstream sports groups, um, physical activity offerings, and helping educate them about how they can make their offer more inclusive of people from our communities. Yeah, so like working with some big football clubs, for example. Yeah, yeah. So we we at Pride Sports, we run um, a campaign, an international campaign called Football Versus Homophobia. And um, we've worked with, you know, over a number of years, we took on the campaign in 2012 uh, from another organisation called the Justin Campaign. And since then, we've been working internationally, obviously, but um, in the UK, across kind of like the 92 clubs um, in a whole range of different ways to to make their club environments more inclusive and welcoming. I think actually football versus homophobia is probably one of your biggest campaigns. And that may be the one that people have heard of. So we'll get on to talk about all the other stuff you do. But let's start with football versus homophobia. I mean, I don't even need to ask the question, why is it needed? Maybe the question is, why is football so homophobic? It seems to be worse than any other sport. There's, but it's not just homophobia, is it? There's so many isms. I mean, just look at the match last week with Hungary and all the racism. Why, why is it accepted and tolerated, this bigotry in football? I think that it's a really complicated answer. I think that we're talking mainly about men's football, Although we're, I think we're seeing as women's football increases in kind of popularity and exposure, we're also seeing a load of attacks on the women's game. So I was talking to a colleague oh. this morning about, I was talking about homophobia in men's football, exactly that conversation. And we were also talking about the women's game and how the amount of misogyny I see towards women players online is just incredible but it's not from other women in the game you know when other people in the game it's mainly from men who have an interest in football so the thing we've got to remember is about football is it's the world's biggest sport Mm -hmm. so therefore it can be a bit of a kind of conductor for what's happening more broadly in the world so in Hungary the Fidesz government has been in power, I can't remember, since 2010, I think. You know, during that time, they have had anti-Roma, 
xenophobic um, policies. They've been, you know, very hostile towards refugees, for example. And they've also embedded a whole load of anti-LGBTQ plus um, legislation during the, their time in power. So their so, fans feel legitimised to say that on the pitch side. Yeah, 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 100%, 100%. All, I think that all we're seeing there is a reflection of a part of Hungarian society in those environments. So then the question is not really about why we see that in football it's about what football does about that and during the euros for example we saw uefa sort of bow down to that state-sponsored homophobia you know ban rainbow flags allow rainbow flags to be taken off supporters in fan zones you know refusing to allow the alliance arena to be lit up in rainbows which mobilized the most incredible show of support in germany an unprecedented i would say from german colleagues i've spoken to show of support in germany so you know one of the things that we need to ask is about the people who have the power in football the governing bodies what are they doing and what are they doing to kind of respond to these kinds of incidents and this kind of culture because that is brought into the stadium and there's two options you can either push it back and sanction it and deal with it and make sure that people behave themselves when they come into um, a football stadium or you can allow it and you can make people feel empowered. Because I mean, I think anyone that shouts homophobic or racist abuse at uh, football players should be banned for life. And that doesn't happen all the time, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And to, to be honest, it's getting it's getting better in the UK with clubs. Clubs are definitely taking more action, but it's that thing about there's still loads more work to be done. So it's about do stewards who are employed to work at football grounds know how to deal with those things in the moment? Do they understand mm. the protocol at the club? But do they also know racism, know homophobia when they hear it? And then do they feel confident to deal with it as a starting point and then how that's escalated through the system? So that's the sort of work you're doing then? You're working with clubs and working with stewards, are you? Yeah, we have done we have done work with stewards, done education pieces with stewards. Obviously, with stewards, it's kind of quite difficult because those people are on tend to be on temporary contracts. Um, those people are not paid very much money, so expecting them to attend a load of additional training can be kind of kind of quite a big ask for people. Yeah. Um, but what we've done, some examples of things we've done, we've gone into football grounds before the fans arrive and spent 15 minutes talking to stewards about different forms of abuse, because generally stewards know the protocol, but they maybe don't know what they maybe not recognise something as homophobic. Didn't Harry Kane wear a a rainbow armband at one point? Yeah, yeah, he did. So during the Euros on one of the games, uh, Harry Kane wore a rainbow armband and it was when England played Germany. And it was because um, the German captain, Manuel Neuer, had worn um, an armband all the way through the Euros at every single match. And so um, Harry Kane uh, wore an armband in a show of solidarity. 
Ah, good man. And it must be so important having people that high up supporting LGBT rights. That must be hugely influential. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, those people, um, allyship from, you know, people with incredible followings and a huge amount of respect from the general public is really, really important. Um, but equally important, and, and I feel like this kind of gets overlooked, is the allyship of people in grassroots football, the people who were prepared to, to stand up on a Sunday league game and say, no, actually, that's not OK. You know, wind your neck in or, you know, <sighs> think about the language that you use, because those are the people who are changing the culture at that level. And maybe even more importantly, in junior football, where it all starts, we need to be really, really clear about how we deal with homophobia and racism from the off within football and at all levels of junior football. So in academies, but also in grassroots football, because that's where the academy kids come from. Absolutely. Well, just to steer away from football for a bit, I'm quite interested to chat to you about all the stuff that you do around some of the big sporting events like Olympics as well, because you have your own pride houses, don't you? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so Pride House, let's start with Pride House. So Pride yeah. House is a movement. The first Pride House was um, established in 2010 at the Vancouver Winter Olympics. Right. Um, it was established by a guy called Dean Nelson and some other activists in Vancouver. And Dean had a Pride House up in Whistler, up in the mountains nice. for the Winter Olympics. Dean's idea was, you know, we have these mega sports events, bearing in mind this is like 11 years ago, you know, we have these mega sports events. Do LGBTQ plus people feel welcome at these events? Uh, no, they probably don't. There's this historic marginalisation within sport and physical activity. I noticed you mentioned right at the beginning about, you know, some of us have been put off sports since school. Mm -hmm. That is still real, very real and very with us as, you know, queer people. So Dean wanted to create something that was visible and welcoming where people could feel like they were part of the action. And the idea was it was based on the concept of Olympic houses. So I don't know if you were at London 2012, but whenever there's an Olympics, it's like, the carnival comes into town, you know, there's so much going on. It's like a, a massive, massive event, not only in the sports, but in the celebration. So every Olympics, there's like a kind of Team GB house, a Netherlands house. There are these kind of venues where national groups are able to celebrate their achievements and, and Olympics and the Paralympics and, you know, celebrate their athletes as well. So Dean was like, you know, we should have one of these for LGBTQ plus people. We're not a nation, but we are an international community. So let's have our own house. And since then, Pride Houses have grown exponentially. So we had one at 2012 at the London Olympics. There was one in Rio uh, at the Olympics there. We've even had them at like European football championships. So there have been a whole load of them. And Pride Sports is really lucky to be working on one for Birmingham Commonwealth Games next year. 
Good evening, thanks for joining me. This is my final weekend outing, and as it's been a big old sporty summer, I thought I would get on Lou Englefield from Pride Sports. We've been talking a bit about their campaign, Football versus Homophobia. We've also found out about their work of uh, Pride Houses that take place at Olympics or other big sporting events as well. But I know one thing you're really passionate about, Lou, is, is getting LGBT people back into sports because... There is a real problem, isn't there? You know, there is a there is an issue with the fact that a lot of us thought that we couldn't get involved in sports at school. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I, th- I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, we know from our work through football versus homophobia, we know that um, boys in particular start using homophobic language when they're playing football from the age of about 10. So it's kind of like, you know, if you are a young person, you know, particularly a young gay man in relation to that with, you know, an emerging identity and all you're hearing is gay is bad, gay is bad, gay is bad, then that's re- can be really, really off-putting for you. The, the other thing is that sport's really gendered and school sport tends to be like girls sport or boys sport. And for young trans people, young non-binary people, that can be incredibly off-putting. I was fuming with my school. I mean, we are talking about the 1980s, Lou, but um, we had to, as girls, play netball and hockey, and the boys got to play football and cricket. And I wanted to play football. I'd have loved to have learned how to play cricket. No, I was not given the opportunity because I was a girl. So, yeah, it was just really annoying and frustrating. It's not as bad now, surely, is it? Well, that's the thing that I was about to say. What's really unfortunate is that I was on a panel recently with some colleagues, some very young in their 20s and some just a bit younger than me. And what we found was they were invited to talk about their child, their school sports experience because it was an event for Educate and Celebrate. And what we found was that the young people were talking about exactly the same school PE experience as my colleague in his 40s. So it's kind of like so frustrating to actually see that young people are still having those experiences. That's frustrating. I mean, if you just look at those two sports, though, I mean, actually, the English ladies cricket team is probably the best in the world. And English women's football team have just done so phenomenally well. So, so, So some young women must be getting those opportunities, surely. Yeah, there are some pathways, but I think lots of the pathways are happening outside of school environments. Mm. And also the other thing um, as well, though, is that school sports can be really monolithic. So it can be very gendered in terms of sport, but also really boring in terms of the amount of stuff that young people are offered. You know, why aren't they offered climbing, sport climbing? It was in the Olympics this year. Oh, that was incredible. They were like spider people, weren't they? They were incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so why aren't why aren't young people offered that as part of their PE curriculum? You know, yeah. why aren't they offered um, sports like softball? You know, that are mixed sports that everyone can play together. You know, big fan of softball. Yeah, absolutely. I discovered it in my thirties, and you're right. It's uh, five men and five women, or or non-binary people, and it's I don't know any other sport that is like that. It's mixed and it's so inclusive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and there are other mixed sports, but it, it's just like, you know, it, it's kind of um, school PE can be just so off-putting for all those reasons. Lack of variety, really gendered, not challenging, homophobic language or misogyny. You know, that's the yeah. other thing. Yeah. Well, I've, I've just been on your website, actually. Just give it a quick plug so we can all go there. Go on. 
Okay, our website's www.pridesports.org.uk. And on there, there's a bit where you can find LGBT inclusive sports clubs. And I literally just put in Manchester, because that's where I live. And the first thing it brought up was something that, I mean, I've lived in Manchester for donkey's years. And I, you know, I feel like I know lots of people. I did not know this existed. There is a martial arts club. Is it the Village Dojo? The Village Dojo. I did not know this existed. This I'm a massive fan of Cobra Kai. I need to join the Village Dojo. This is just so cool. So there's loads on there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there are, there are. I mean, you know, as I said, there's, I think, over 250 LGBTQ plus specific groups now around the UK. I have to say they're mainly located in cities, but we mm. are seeing some sports grow up in large towns now, which is really good. But I mean, there's there's everything from volleyball to swimming to martial arts to cricket. You know, there's a brand new um, LGBTQ plus cricket group in Birmingham. Loads of stuff happening. There's even been a kind of queer surf group um, yes. that was set up in South Wales. So you know, some great, great stuff out there if you're interested in in doing something with other people like you, like-minded people, you know, um, get on our website and have a look through the Sport Finder. Oh, it's so important, isn't it? And before you go, I've been lucky enough on this show to speak to a few trans women who are athletes as well. And I think, I mean, this might be a big generalisation, but is that the next big battle for, for your organisation, really, just getting trans equality in sport? Because there's been so much hatred towards trans athletes, hasn't there, in, you know, in this Olympics and in other sports as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's something that we've been working on for a number of years, Um but the environment has really changed. So we were in a particular place around trans participation. There was lots of positivity around it. We've now seen this incredible anti-trans lobby Mm. um, outside sport. And one of the battlefields that they've chosen is sport. And so we're having to spend loads more time working just to maintain the status quo really and not allow things to slip backwards because that would be horrendous it's hard enough for trans people to participate in sport and physical activity as it is you know and we thought that was progress but to allow those small gains to disappear would be terrible what what can we do then what can trans allies do to, to make things better for trans people in sport do you think Um, I think that we need to, I think, one, read around the issues. So try and read a variety variety of stuff because there's a lot of misinformation out Mm. there. Don't rely on um, assumptions that we hear given all the time that trans women will be better at sport because trans women were formerly men and therefore they have a natural advantage. The research is really um, diverse around those issues and that evidence doesn't really stack up. So we've seen research used in a particularly toxic way. So Mm. I would encourage people to read more, make yourself more aware of issues, uh, don't rely on outdated assumptions. You know, sport and sporting excellence is based on a whole load of stuff. It's based on training, it's based on your uh, determination and a whole load of psychological attributes. 
It's also based on tactics. And then physicality is one part of that. Um, and yet the, the anti-trans debate is all focuses yeah. purely on, on assumptions based or around physicality that actually don't stack up. It's all about testosterone, isn't it, according to them? And yeah. uh, actually people have to jump through, speaking to trans athletes, people have to jump through so many hoops and prove their testosterone levels for, for years before they're allowed to compete, aren't they? they yeah, really yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, even at a grassroots level. Um, so things yeah. are hard enough as it is for trans athletes. We would want us to see us move forward. But the thing that concerns me is that we will start seeing the small gains that we've had eroded if we don't take action. Yeah. But on the positive side, I think I'm right in saying, aren't I, that the, the last Olympics was probably the most inclusive we've ever seen in terms of the amount of out lesbian, gay, bi, pan and trans athletes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things uh, one of the things about that is that I think we had three non-binary athletes Ooh. compete in the Olympics. Right. Uh, but nobody was really in the mainstream media was talking about those athletes, you know, and everybody was focused on the trans woman who was competing. So there's yeah. clearly an agenda there in the media. But actually, you know, there are, as you say, some things to celebrate, too. They really are. Well, before you go, what would you say to someone listening at home thinking, oh, this is kind of inspiring, actually, all these LGBT people at the Olympics. I don't really have that as a goal, but I would like to get back to a sport because I was sort of put off it at school because of all the reasons we mentioned. What would you say to someone to sort of try again and get the benefits of sport? Sure. Well, what I would say, one, um, there are a whole range of LGBTQ plus specific groups out there. So go on our club finder, have a look at that. If you don't want to be part of that environment, and not all people do, there are some great kind of back to sport offers in particular sports. So, you know, just off the top of my head, something like back to netball, for example, provides an environment in which people can go along, have a go. You know, you may not have played that sport since school. You may want to have a bit of a go at it for the first time. So going along to one of those sessions, you're not going to be expected to be an Olympic level athlete. You'll be able to go along, <laughs> learn some new skills, get back into the sport and, and give it a go. Yeah, well, I think I'm going to take up your advice, actually, because I've never done karate. But after watching Cobra Kai, I feel like I'm going to go and join LGBT karate groups. So uh, wish me luck on that one, Lou. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. A big thank you for listening. Uh, and a thank you to Lou from Pride Sports. Um, more information about that organisation at pridesports.org.uk. You can see about all of the campaigns that they're involved in. And by the way, Lou, I love not just the sound of a gay dojo, the sound of a queer surf group. Wow. That's another reason to move to South Wales, isn't it? Also, at the end of our Zoom call, because, of course, that's how we have to interview people these days, um, Lou said, oh, do you want to see my view? Turned the camera around to reveal the most stunning bit of Welsh countryside and blue skies. I was so jealous. Yes, right, we're all moving to Wales. It's imperative. <laughs> You're listening to me, Emma Goswell? Well, you have been for the last 12, 13, 14 weeks, however long it's been since the beginning of June. And that's it. 
that's the end. This was a pop-up station for the whole of the summer to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community and hopefully we have done that. want to say a few thank yous actually. want to say a big thank you to Steve Softly for um, believing in me and letting me do this show and becoming part of the Virgin family. It's become... It's been a bit of a dream come true, really, actually. I've absolutely buzzed on being part of the station and bringing you what I hope has been some really incredible and inspiring guests over the last few weeks. A big thank you to two of my producers, to Connor and Polly, who have helped um, put all the music together and done all the tech stuff, <laughs> which I'm not capable of doing. Um, so a big thank you to them as well. By the way, if you have missed any of the shows, you can go back and listen to um, several podcasts of the shows. So just search for Virgin Radio Pridecast, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can listen to all of those incredible guests that I've had the pleasure of chatting to over the weeks. And lastly, a big thank you to you for trying out a new station and believing in us and listening to us and taking the time, hopefully every weekend, to listen to my weekend outing. It's been a blast. The time has come to say goodbye, though, but I'm going to leave you with a quote from C. Joy Belsey, who's a great poet and thinker. And she said this, Ends are not bad things. They just mean something else is about to begin. How true. We don't even know what it is yet. Isn't life exciting? Right, that's it from me, Emma Goswell. Adios.